the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. He's controversial. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. He's outspoken. You will tell your kids and your grandkids and your great, great, grandkids. And he tells it like it is. That you watched a great athlete named the franchise and he was the greatest world's heavyweight champion of all time. He is the franchise Shane Douglas and you are listening to the Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised. Welcome in here to the Triple Threat Podcast being brought to you today and powered on the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and on the Triple Threat Podcast, not only am I joined by my tag team partner from the two-man power trip, the one and only JP, John Paz, but of course, we're joined each and every week by the ECW champion, the one and only franchise, Shane Douglas, on his Triple Threat Podcast, but as the one with the duties to get the show put together, I welcome you to the best of 2018 Part 1, as this week we close out the final two weeks of our podcast calendar year. First, with a little bit of a best of, so you can hear some of the better clips of the calendar year 2018, and some of the moments that had a couple eyebrows raised and a couple people either scratching their heads or covering their mouths because every time Shane says something, it seems to get some sort of a fire lit underneath the proverbial fanny of the wrestling business. So in this episode, we've got some of the great moments. Next week in part two of the 2018 Best Of, we've got the guest stars of the Triple Threat Podcast featuring some great names that we had on in the year 2018. So we kind of set the bar high for ourselves as we get into 2019. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to getting back with Shane and JP and recording some new episodes of the Triple Threat Podcast. But with all that being said, we're going to get into the best of for part one today. It has been quite the ride that we've had putting all these episodes together. Shane traveling to Australia for a couple of weeks and obviously, a uh, pretty crazy schedule in that. That kind of threw us for a loop for the remainder of the calendar year. But we made it through, and we are ready to get 2019 started with a big bang. So stay tuned for that, and thank you so much for downloading the Triple Threat Podcast. We will see you on the flip side of the calendar. So this is part one, and stay tuned next week for part two of the best of the Triple Threat Podcast. And let's get it on over to the man himself, the franchise, Shane Douglas, as we get the 2018 Best Of underway right here and right now. If you ever take a trip down. 
I'd love to see it, but you know, the, the, the best all time, you know, for me anyway, uh, the voices that you don't expect to be like they are is uh, Big Boss Man Ray Trainer. Um, you know, he's he, you know, this big, gruff guy, 6'4", six, 6'5", six, you know, 300 plus pounds, you know, big raw bone guy. You know, you hear him talking, he, he talks sort of like, Hey Shane, how you doing, buddy? How you doing? <laughs> he had his real <laughs> high pitched voice, you know, just really, you know, just uh, you know, Ray's another one of those guys that uh, you know, that I really miss. Uh, he, he, little known, little side trivia fact here: Ray Trader was uh, part of my wedding party. Uh, he was uh, oh wow, part of part of the franchise wedding party, and you know, Ray and I had been, were very close friends, uh, which is you know why he was on the wedding party. Um, you know, when I heard that he had passed away uh, from OxyContin, I was floored uh, because, you know, I'm sure as much as, you know, as if he had heard that I had an addiction with OxyContin, he would have been shocked. Uh, you know, I don't know if anybody saw um, uh, one of the Mellon uh, heirs, uh, same age as me, 53 years old, died today uh, or yesterday. Uh, from OxyContin, he was at a rehab facility in Cancun and passed away. So, yeah, it's a, a, a wicked, a wicked drug that that party pharmaceuticals have unleashed on the world, and uh, you know it's it's taken more than a share of people in this industry, and you know continues to. So, uh, you know, just really a you know satellite. You know, I don't know why I digress that. Just I just read it today and. You know, we're, we're sitting here talking about the fun things about the wrestling business and go to this dark turn. But, you know, uh, Ray, Ray is a guy that I that sorely missed in the industry. Uh, was a great guy and, uh, you know, just, you know, one of those guys that, like I said, uh, had that voice that when you when you heard him talk, you know, you took a thousand wrestling fans and put them behind a curtain and said, you know, who is this? And hear him talk and they would never guess Big Boss Man. <laughs> <laughs> But you know what? He's such like he. I mean, he could say he could have a, a high pitched, uh, glass breaking voice. You know, when he hit he hit the ring with that fire, he could throw that right hook. You know, he was, oh, uh, he was the big boss man. You know, he was really the he was the man. He could go. He he was a hell of an athlete. You know, it's uh, you know, you sort of get lost in that whole you know the big boss man character and the way the WWE or WWF then portrayed their characters. But uh, Ray Trainer was a hell of an athlete and could move around for a guy that size. I was always impressed, you know, in the industry that I came into. And, you know, I always called it the land of the giants. You know, at you know six one, two hundred and fifty three pounds, I was a I was a midget. You know, I was a, a munchkin in the industry. And you know, I'm in an industry of guys six 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 five six seven seven foot tall, three hundred four hundred five hundred pounds. And these guys are moving around like cats. You know, I, rem- I remember when uh, uh, Yokozuna, back in the day when we first were breaking in, back in the Continental Wrestling Federation, he was still Kokina. And I'm guessing about 360, 380 at the time, and was moving around like Rey Mysterio Jr. It was astounding, you know, to see the athleticism of these guys. Um you know, but that was the industry that I came into. It was super freaky, you know, to see guys this size, this big, this strong, this limb, nimble and, and, and agile. 
it was crazy. It was, you know, just a, you know, like superhuman almost. You know, if it wouldn't surprise me if half of them ripped the shirt off and they had an S on their chest underneath because they, you know, there really were some freaky athletic guys in the industry that were monsters. It was crazy. You know, I got to say, though, I feel like the boss man kind of benefited from that character because when they were really building up that that early 90s core uh, of those cartoony, you know, everybody's got to have some kind of profession character. I don't know why I think the big boss man fit Ray Trailer like a glove. But, you know, here's one question I got for you since you knew him so well. He really transitioned his body like unbelievably over the span of about a year where he went from being like a super duper duper heavyweight with a you know big, yeah. big gut and you know to becoming so lean and you could see that athleticism and the and the 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 slim like physique that he ended up having now do you know how he managed to do that i mean cuz it it seems like in one vein you see him and he's got the you know the chubbier face the big gut and then uh, you know 6 months later he's lean he's cut and he's flying down the ramp. I mean, he would legitimately sprint to the ring. Yeah. It's, you know, when you get at that, especially at that time, and I'm sure it's still the same mindset and culture today. Uh, when you got to the WWF back then, there was this just sort of general wisdom that you tapped into about diet and supplements and, you know, working out and all the things you had to do because, you know, when you're on the road, what the, the average fan out there may not understand is, you know, they, you know, live in a 24-hour day. So they wake up in the morning, they go to the gym, they shower, they go to their job, or they go to their job, get a shower and come home, eat dinner, go to bed, whatever. Back then, you know, as I'm sure much the same today to a lesser degree, I don't think they do the same amount of travel, but... Uh, you know, you, you were flying around the country, sometimes around the world, and having to get off that plane, jump into a rental car, zip to the hotel, you know, to throw your bags down and, you know, brush your teeth and, you know, get ready and zip over to the arena, and you still had to find time to work out. And as I recall, uh, both in my 1990 stint and later in my 96 stint, in the WWF was that there was this uh, culture that sort of sprung up. You know, if you're going to go to the gym, you got to go at this point uh, of the day, because if you wait longer, you won't have time uh, eating. If you're going to eat something, you got to grab your food now and take it with you to the building. Uh, You know, it was completely normal and commonplace to see guys on planes you know, you've all seen, we've all seen the packets of protein, right? You know, you got a, like an envelope of protein powder and where they used to call it the protein pudding. You'd tear that open and pour a little bit of water into it just to make a, like a paste and you'd eat it like a pudding. Um, you know, it was just a, like the, your whole life revolved around your diet, uh, your workout, um, you know, where you could squeeze it in during the day and it just became part of your daily culture. Like you get up, you shower and you shave. Uh, when you were in the Federation or on the, any of the majors, WCW, ECW, NWA, UWF, uh, you know, you had to do it in a certain way if you were going to 
hope to excel at that ladder. And, you know, I can, in my mind's eye, I can still see guys like Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko and Eddie Guerrero, you know, tearing their protein packets open on the plane and pouring a little bit of water and stirring up with a plastic spoon and eating, a, you know, the protein pudding. Uh, just what you had to do, you know. And likewise, we, you know, we used to always meet up, uh, me, Perry, Saturn, Dean Malenko, and uh, uh, Chris Benoit used to meet up and, we always stayed at Marriott's, and we'd wake up in the morning. We'd meet you know, 6, 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning, eat our breakfast, and head off to the gym because you had to, you know, in, in very short order, either be on a plane or be in a car driving to the next destination. And that was that was your daily life. It was, you know, like I said, getting up and shit, showering and shaving. For the average person, for the average wrestler, it was doing those types of things. And, uh just carrying through day to day. We're here in my remote lectern to offer a first ever midterm report to one of my students. In this case, the heartbreak kid, Shawn Michaels. And we go back to this past Monday night for an especially important match against World Wrestling Federation superstar Jerry the King Lawler. Therefore, before we begin, definition, altruistic, meaning a preponderant concern for what others think. Shawn Michaels has shown time and time again here in the World Wrestling Federation that he's more concerned with what the fans think than what he's doing in the ring, and that is wrestling Jerry the King Lawler. If we continue forward in the match, we'll find exactly what that kind of behavior will get you here in the rings of the World Wrestling Federation. Again, Shawn Michaels is looking for the approval of the crowd. And if we continue on to see what happens when you seek such approval, the King Jerry Lawler will make you pay every time. <laughs> Therefore, heartbreak kid, Shawn Michaels, after very close consideration from this Monday Night Raw, I give you a grade of IU <laughs> for inanely unprepared. Until next week, class dismissed. Raw has been a major staple of professional wrestling, uh, whether Vince wants to call it that or not, uh, for lo much longer than that. But uh, Raw has been a major portion of that history for the last 25 years. And like you talked about earlier about the cultural impact of wrestling and, and its pendulums, how far-reaching they are. Uh, it's you know I, I think that's a hell of an accomplishment that, that they've been able to get 25 years. I'll be the last couple of years, maybe a little bit sketchy. Um, but it's pretty rare that you'd find anybody, any red-blooded American that wouldn't know what you're talking about. If you said to them, the phrase Monday night raw. Um, and so in that respect, and all those names you just mentioned are sort of the kind of names that, you know, wrestling fans are going to want to want to tune into um, to see. I, I think three hours, is overkill uh, on a week-to-week -week basis. I'd originally heard it was going to be five hours long. Wow. 
my God. Talk about fucking Um But it'll be interesting to see how they play off of that. My my curiosity to it is, what's the, you know, I'm sure they're going to get a good rating for it, um, but what's going to happen after that when you remind the fans of all those great, incredible times gone past? And then you turn Monday Night Raw in the week after and see the same stuff you've been seeing, the teleprompters and the heavily overly scripted uh, 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 action sequences that are devoid of wrestling moves and are basically acrobatics and punch, kick, punch, kick. Uh, Are you not running the risk that you're going to remind the fans of how damn good Raw used to be and the incredible talent that Raw used to have as opposed to your current offering. Just throwing it out there for food for thought. Uh, So uh, my first recollection of Raw as Dean Douglas was the the episode that was shot in Lansing, I believe, where we had Bob Backlund involved in X-Pac, and I wrestled uh, uh, Scott Hall for the Intercontinental title. so by that time, it was already highly evident that, you know, to me anyway, that the, the character as had been uh, explained to me was not the character they were going to go with on air. And so, you know, it sort of took on a life of its own. I have very negative memories of my time there in 96. The money was the shits. Uh, the travel was brutal. Um you know, I was working my ass off every night and uh, 28 days on average per month and, you know, getting paid peanuts compared to the people that I was wrestling. Uh, so you won't hear me say much, much positive about uh, about my time there as Dean Douglas in the Raw days. Uh, um, other than I, I enjoyed a lot of the guys that I was on the road with, like Dustin Rhodes and, uh, you know, many others at that time, uh, Bret Hart, Kurt Hennig, uh, uh, Undertaker. I really enjoyed working around those guys and being around those guys, uh, Owen Hart. Uh, but as far as my experience there on a match-to-match basis, you know, in, in ECW, I used to really relish looking forward to going on the road every weekend. I couldn't, it was almost like you couldn't wait to go back out again. And in WWF in 1995-96, it was a an absolute labor to get yourself to go on the road. And, you know, so for me, like, <laughs> needless to say, I probably won't be watching next week because, gosh darn it, we'll be recording an episode next week. So <laughs> thank God we got an excuse to not watch that painful stuff. But I'm sure it's going to be, for wrestling fans, a, a great blast of nostalgia to the past. Um but again, I, I, I question, you know, I'm already hearing uh, with the young guys up there how desperate they are to get out of there and to leave and be part uh, to go work the indies. And then you're going to see this huge red carpet rolled out to the, you know, blast from the past, much like the WrestleMania every year. You know, how many times in the last, you know, five, seven, eight years have we seen Shawn Michaels, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Mick Foley, uh, you know, these guys brought back to try to bolster the uh, the draw of the gate, which clearly to me indicates that Vince McMahon is not doing his job. His company's not doing its job to get the younger kids over to where they should be. 
I think it's going to drive you know one more wedge in there to the younger kids to as to why they want to leave as opposed to staying. So the superstars tapings back in the day were hours and hours and hours of tapings. Raw they taped a few episodes, but you did go live uh, at least one of the episodes. So live production versus the tape production. Shane, is there? Uh, at that point, is there a little bit more uh, emphasis on the show being more crisp, or is it just when you do those multiple shows in a row, is it kind of uh, they all just bleed into each other? Well, they, they really bleed into each other. You, know, you said hours and hours and hours. It's actually more like hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Uh, the crowd got dead after about two hours. Uh, there were multiple times. The big running joke with amongst the boys was, you know, you'd go out to the ring and have a match that, you know, was pretty good match, but you might have missed a spot or, you know, there was something that Vince wanted that that you didn't put in. They'd stop you behind the curtain, have a towel there for you to towel off. They'd turn around and hit the music and send you right back out to the exact same match you just had, but including what Vince wanted in the match. And, so imagine you're sitting there as a fan watching. You see Shane Douglas and Scott Hall go to the ring and have a match. We come back, and 10 seconds later, the music hits, and out comes Shane Douglas and Scott Hall to have the exact same match that you just watched with one or two differences that you probably don't remember because you're so bored of watching the same match you just watched. Um, it was just a crowd killer. Now, I remember the first and second hours usually had pretty good crowd response. But by the end of that second hour, you could hear it draining off. And by the third or fourth hour, the crowd was just flat. And then Vince would then pipe in the music on the TV show. So, you know, you hear a roar of the crowd, but you see the crowd sitting there motionless with bored looks on their faces. It was pretty evident that, that it was piped in sound. Um, you know, to me, it was just a, a death knell. That, that one that I didn't see the reason for, other than just, like you said, overkill. I'll just keep putting on more and more and more matches. You know, sometimes, like the old saying goes, less is more. And, you know, to go out there and leave the crowd after two hours, you know, on their feet and wanting more is far better than having a crowd going, looking at their watch and saying, damn it, I'm so glad to be getting the hell out of here already. Um, which was my recollection of, of raw tapings back then. They just, they were brutally long and un, I believe unnecessarily so. It, uh, it just took a little bit of creativity from a booking standpoint to do it properly as opposed to just go out there and and execute a, a crowd just so you can get more footage. I hear voices in my head. They counsel me. They understand. They talk to me. They've been hurt out there uh, and have been hurt, you know, by, I mean, you know, this week we just had this huge thing here in Pennsylvania released about the Catholic church, you know, so I, I, I would have, you know, try to choose my words carefully or to, to not, I'm not talking about any one group or whatever, 
But I think in general, we've gotten a little overly sensitive in this country. You know, where I saw an interview by, uh, oh, name, again, brain fart here on names. Uh, uh, the comedian that was on uh, Tim Allen's, I'm thinking Rick Allen. I, when I saw a comment from uh, Tim Allen recently uh, responding to a question about the Roseanne comments. And he had, this is like three or four weeks after, you know, the hubbub had died down. And he made such a relevant point when he said, you know, I've been a comedian for 39 years and our job as comedians is to push the boundaries, you know, to make people think, hopefully make them laugh as they're thinking. And he said, I wonder now where we stand today, who gets to decide what's funny, what's proper, what's improper. If it's me, me speaking for Shane Douglas, everything, I'd love it because I get to decide if, what's tasteful, what's distasteful, what's funny, what's not funny, and what's uh, disgusting and harmful or abusive. And you guys don't. Nobody else does, just me. But that's not how the world works. You know, the world works. Right now we're seeing this thing where it's sort of this evolving mass of mercury that some days it's this and some days it's that somebody says they're offended by this. And it's like, for instance, you know, I, what's her name? Argenta, uh, the, the actress who accused Harvey Weinstein. I'm not for a second defending Harvey Weinstein, but I find it, you know, almost apropos that now she's admitted having made a payment to buy somebody's silence about whatever you see what I'm saying? Like where does sanity stop and where does it begin? You know, like who gets to decide what's proper and what's improper? I think you know, there are certain universalities, you know, like I, you know, anybody, I think with anybody with a brain and with any taste and class and, and, and sense of right and wrong would say doing anything to a child is you got to be shot and anybody doing uh, anything to take advantage of elderly people or, you know, people that have, you know, mental or physical uh, limitations should be shot. I, I mean, those are certain universalities, but when you break into this, when, you know, it's a room full of just average people and one person says something that somebody else says they're offended by, but the rest of the room laughs. Is the rest of the room wrong for laughing or, and who gets to decide? That's the question. You know, like the world has changed in many ways for the better. And in some ways really questionable since I've been a kid, uh, who gets to decide who gets to be the policeman that says, Chad, what you said is right. Ha ha ha. And JP, what you said is wrong. Boo. Now we're going to have to ostracize you and get you fired from your job and all the rest. It's, it's a really nebulous question and one that demands that somebody sooner or later answer. Otherwise, nobody's going to be telling any jokes because you might offend somebody. And, you know, all we, and we'll, we'll get to the point where we can't even make eye contact because you might think I'm ogling you. Uh, again, where does this insanity end? 
I was checking out a Walgreens a little while ago with my boys with me. And the lady behind the counter, nice looking young girl worked behind the counter, kept calling me honey and sweetheart. Uh, do you have a card with a sweetheart? Okay, honey, well, here's, where you, here's how you slide your card, sweetheart. And I don't know myself, if this were turned around, if I was standing back there and she was checking out and I was saying those things, I'd be in damn big trouble with Walgreens. Because I'm trying to be nice to this young lady. I didn't take it in any way offensive. I didn't take it in any way condescending. But again, flip that around, put me behind that counter, and let me call that customer sweetheart and honey. You see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. It's, you know, my mom told me when I was a small kid and taught me, my parents taught me from the time I was a small kid. You don't get to have it both ways, son. And yet it seems to me like now suddenly we're in this shifting world that every day, like today something's funny, but tomorrow it's not. And it's only funny if you're in a certain group, but not another group. And quite frankly, as an old guy, I'm having a real tough time trying to ascertain what is funny anymore. And am I allowed to laugh and what's offensive? What's not offensive. I just find it insane. All of it. I really do. So, so is he, is this writer, you know, obviously the writer's not one of the boys, but is this writer kind of breaking the code of even talking about this? Because, you know, I mean, look, what happens backstage, it happens backstage. I'm sure, you know, and I'll, I'll reference Jim Cornette. I, I, I had actually first heard about it from his show and, and a clip that was posted on YouTube, I guess the story kind of blossomed, uh, as the days went on, but Jim Cornette was talking about how, you know, Dusty Rhodes would be known to be in his cowboy boots and cowboy hat. <laughs> That's it. Ribs were you ribs were ubiquitous back then in the industry. Uh, you know, and I'm not going to mention any names. Cause I don't want to get any heat on anybody and say something because should the sands change a little bit tomorrow and suddenly something tomorrow is offensive that wasn't offensive today. Uh, I never took any of it personally. I never took anything that anybody was doing. It always seemed to me as exactly what it was. The guy's blown off steam. The guy's having a good time. The guy's trying to lessen the stress of being on the road 350 plus days a year. Uh, I never took it as, and it seems if, you know, the people that were coming to the shows that you saw show after show after show, Many times at the shows, multiple times after the shows. Didn't seem like they were very offended by what was going on, because if you're offended, you wouldn't come back the next time, right? Uh, so, I, I, like I said, way at the beginning of this podcast, I think everybody just has to stop and take a deep breath and say, stop all this what about me-ism. You know, quite frankly, I don't think the world gives a shit if Shane Douglas is offended by something or not. Uh, at least I would hope they aren't because uh, the overall scheme of the cosmos of 7 billion people on this planet, not very important. Uh, but if somebody gets so hyper offended because I said sweetheart to somebody or honey, like the young lady at Walgreens did to me tonight. Uh, and like I said, I didn't take it offensively. I didn't take it as she was coming on to me or trying to sexually abuse me. I took it as a young lady being polite and trying to make me comfortable and checking out. Um, 
Now I'm sure if I if I would t- tomorrow go down there and talk to man and say that young lady you had working last night called me sweetheart honey and I was offended and blah 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 blah, I probably could get that young lady in trouble. Why the fuck would I do that? <laughs> I was not offended. It was not an offensive thing that young lady did. Uh, but again, if there's what about meism? Well, well, Shane Douglas is the most important being on the planet. Only I matter. You guys don't matter. And that young lady trying to be nice doesn't matter. Screw her. I'm going to get her fired. Come on. Now, if, so, if she comes up and as she's saying that, you know, starts trying to touch my privates or something a little different, you know, but in the overall scheme of the car, again, we're, I, I want somebody to give me the, the stone tablet of what is copacetic and what is not copacetic. What today is allowed and what is not allowed. And if we disseminate that to the entire population, I'm sure we can all agree to and live by. But when it's like shifting sands in a desert, well, Chad, I know what you said yesterday wasn't offensive, but today it is. So sorry, pal, we got to get you fired. Uh, how, how can you live by that? I mean, how, how can any of us know what's right or wrong? And the only thing I see coming from that is we all stop communicating. We all stop talking looking at each other, hanging out with each other, because God forbid I might say or do something that offends somebody. Uh, I don't think anybody listening to this podcast, and certainly, any, uh, as I'm saying, is I'm not thinking that this is not an easy thing to solve. Offensive behavior is offensive behavior. And most sentient and intelligent adults can figure that out very quickly, what is offensive and what is not offensive, what is funny and what's not funny. So if this is something Randy Orton was doing, I personally, in full disclosure, never saw Randy Orton do that, never did it to me, so I I can't speak from personal experience. But it seems to me, knowing the dress room and you know the phrase we use in the dress room, you know, all the boys, meaning all the men and women in the dressing room, uh I don't see that as an offensive thing. Now, if he's going out and every time he meets a fan saying, Hey, you know, that's something different, but the dressing room is something different. It's sort of a, the inner sanctum, you know, the, the inner holy of holies where we get to let our hair down, get to speak our mind, uh, in the dressing room situation. If somebody does something that's offensive, typically you can go over and pull that person aside and hey, and say, you know, that wasn't very cold, dude, you know, and I can't think of a time when somebody did that, that that person continued doing that. Uh, but it's so seldomly done, you know, in that inner dressing room and in that inner sanctum and inner holy of holies where, where we get to be ourselves, you know, very few people have ever complained about that because nobody ever takes it offensively. You know, it's just a question of, uh, you know, is somebody being overly sensitive or is somebody saying, you know, look, I can get some brownie points or maybe get away or maybe get a lawsuit and get some money from if I just say this was offensive to me. Well, who knows? I, again, I don't know Randy Orton that well. Uh, I can't think of I've ever met. I may have met him and said hello once or twice, uh, but here's an idea. If he does that and you don't find it funny, maybe pull him aside and say, hey, dude, you know, I'm not into that. Didn't think it was funny. Would appreciate if you don't do it again. I'd be, I'd be shocked, in fact, if he came back and did it again. 
but again, it, it's my early statement. Was if it was funny yesterday, man, nobody's sure today, but it's not funny tomorrow. Who gets to be the arbiter of that? Who gets to be the policeman on telling Randy Orton? It was funny yesterday, today, and tomorrow it's not funny. I don't know about you guys, but I think that's a pretty damn tough thing to disseminate and discern. It's uh, it's a huge thing to disseminate and discern, but just uh, hypothetically speaking, does it need to be a, uh, a, a an admonishment of what happened or uh, an endorsement? But funny or not funny? Uh, I'd say pretty funny from where you know my, my place <laughs> in the business. Funny because uh, you know again that's you know it's it's not like you're going on the Titantron and doing this to every fan in the building, right? You're doing it. And my understanding, the way I've understood it, is that this is something he's doing, like somebody new coming into the dressing room and, you know, you know, a bigger name, trying to make that person feel a little uncomfortable for that few seconds and then welcoming them into that, into that fraternity. Uh, harmless. Your referee looks scared to death. It looks like a lawsuit weighed the head. Okay, thank God. <laughs> hey. Look at the power! Oh. With a power slam! Cover! Oh. Oh. This, this kid, Nicholas, of the Here tag team champions! But it feels so right. A 10-year-old child is going to go to school tomorrow as a Raw Tag Team Champion that he won at WrestleMania with Braun Strowman. Are you kidding me? He can't even hold the title up. Corey, say that again. I can say it 10 more times and I still won't believe it. I'm still trying to process what just happened. This is incredible. I mean, this kid came to WrestleMania tonight, probably his first ever WrestleMania experience. Who would have ever thought that he would go home a tag team champion with Braun Strowman? Vince Russo has, in my book and in John's book, has been officially vindicated. And you could take David Arquette, you could take <laughs> I know Viagra, <laughs> you could take Viagra on a pole, you could take uh, – all the, the, the crazy uh, random title changes. Uh, again, David Arcade, I'll just throw that one back out there. And in the famous words of the franchise, and they can all kiss Vince Russo's ass because <laughs> the biggest shit ever taken in the wrestling business happened on Sunday when they put the tag team championship belt on a child picked out of the crowd yeah. Uh, yeah. in a tag team title match that was literally – the co- it was the it was the the lead into the main event and, and this this match with Braun Strowman and you said it on this show you know if they're gonna put him in a chicken suit they're gonna give him the big bass fiddle they're gonna do all this stuff they're gonna castrate this guy and right. have him pick a kid out of the crowd uh, as his mystery partner and win the tag team championship I mean to take a crap on anybody who's ever held those championship belts and the work that especially those guys on the pre-show that were wrestling at 5 o'clock in the afternoon had to watch this kid mm. win the World, uh, World Tag Team Championship. Shane, I, I'm, I've been dying to hear what you have to say about it. Did you? What do you think? I mean, this is like, to me, I think it's just a big uh, insult and an albatross on wrestling. Well, uh, my understanding, again, from the guys that went in my entourage, 
that they were saying that the audience sort of died after that, that it's sort of like you feel the energy, like leave the room. Uh, look, we've heard for 18 years, right? Vince Russo is the worst thing ever to wrestling because we put a belt in David Arquette. Well, as much as I disagree with that decision, that was better than putting a belt on a 10-year-old kid. Uh, you know, better. my thought, as soon as I heard this was, what about Cesaro and Sheamus? That they got to go out and do a job to one guy that's got a ten-year-old kid as a, as a sidekick. Um, you know, the only way that could have worked, and this this may sound terrible, but if you think it through, the only way that could have worked is if they had uh, uh, you know a kid that was a make-a-wish kid or uh, a kid that had been sick or something, and then you bring him in and do something. Like that. I think it would have popped the crowd still would have been abhorred by wrestling purists. But at least then you could have seen some, you know, some light at the end of the tunnel with it. But again, we've seen, like you've mentioned, in, in the way you led into this, Vince Russo has been vilified for 18 years over the David Arquette thing. And now we have this. You know, but, on, uh, but to be fair, let's throw some other stuff in here from the WrestleMania weekend. Uh, there was a show that shall go unnamed. You can find it, I'm sure, if you look, uh, where they had the Invisible Man come out and win a battle royal. And, like, again, I go back to Bill Watts. <laughs> and I asked Bill Watts specifically about that. And his <laughs> mouth dropped open when I said it. Um, you know, if, if like, to me, it just, it just reeks that it seems that Nobody has respect for the industry or their own work in the industry anymore. Let's just go out and, like, what's next? Shane Douglas shoots laser beams out of his eyes. Uh, I fly around the ring and flip out talons and slash somebody to death. I mean, where does it end? If if everything is just a, a spoof, if everything is just a Saturday Night Live skit, then where does it end? And like you, you mentioned it again in your lead-in. Vince Russo has been vilified in this industry to this day. Look at the feedback you guys got off of, you know, off the, uh, the interview you had uh, with David Arquette. And uh, to me, that is so much more plausible, as implausible as it is. That was so much more plausible than having a 10-year-old kid come out of the audience and win the world tag team titles. Uh, you know, it's, it's, to me, just it bespeaks of what all that is wrong with our business today. And this is whenever people hear me t say in any interview, this is the difference of sports entertainment to professional wrestling. There's a very stark difference, black and white. And... Nothing against the kid. I, I'm happy that he lived a, a, a dream that he'll live the rest of his life and remember forever. But that's not what WrestleMania is supposed to be about. That's not what the product is supposed to be about. Uh, if, if you look at the NFL, when the Steelers are driving for a touchdown, it's not about, hey, let's stop here and bring some 10-year-old kid out of the audience to run the ball in so that <laughs> everybody can pop that this 10-year-old kid wins the touchdown or gets the touchdown. And yet it just underscores to me just how far off the tracks our industry has gone. 
that after 18 years of vilification of Intruso for that decision, we now get this. And in light of, uh, at the same time, we're getting the Invisible Man winning Battle Royals, and we get freeze frames, and we get pretend hand grenades, and we get all this crazy stuff that has nothing to do with wrestling. Okay, again, if, if it's just, let's just be more outlandish than the others, then I'm going to get a pair of goggles that shoots laser beams out, and I'll just vaporize every opponent I ever have to wrestle and uh, pull out a voodoo doll and stick them in the heart and pin them. I mean, where does it end? I mean, how absurd does it have to get before it's too absurd? I would say we're well beyond that level now. Now I'm reading Sports Illustrated liked it. They thought Strowman and Nicholas were a great pairing. They both played their part well. I mean, those guys are idiots. Just such fake wow. idiots that legit <laughs> know nothing about wrestling. They should never cover wrestling. Quit the business, you idiots. My God. That was Sports so Illustrated said that. Yes. Yep. Wow. I, I mean, I, I'm canceling my I'm canceling my subscription to Sports Illustrated tomorrow. I really want that, that and, and they don't make it anymore. I want that flip football phone, but they don't make it anymore. So screw them. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Hell, I'll just go buy the the, the, the swimsuit uh, edition when it comes out. Do they even still make that anymore? Yes. Oh yeah. Oh my God! You really in this PC world they can still do a swimsuit. I mean, isn't that victimizing women and taking advantage and all these other horrible things? Jeez. Can't believe they would do that. Well, <laughs> if, they, if 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 they're putting over Strowman and a ten-year-old kid winning the belt, then fuck Sports Illustrated. Well, enough is enough, and it's time for a change. Come and take your best shot. I tried to be a Looking nice Looking back, guy. since 1999, the death of Owen Hart, you told us off the air, you can't believe it's been that long. It only feels like a few years. You know, kind of take us yeah. back to that point in time where, you know, that his passing just took everybody by surprise. It was so brutally uh, shocking at that point. Yeah, that's the best way to put it, brutally shocking. I, I was at home, obviously not watching the pay-per-view. And... Uh, the manager, merchandise manager for ECW, Damian Farron, who passed away uh, two Julys ago, this July, uh, called me and said, are you watching this? And I said, no. He said, well, they're WWE, WWF or WWE, whatever they were called at that time. Uh, he said, they're doing something really tasteless. They're saying that Owen Hart died. And I said, what are, they, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, they're saying that he, his stunt went bad and he fell to his death. And I got on the computer and said, I remember this is in the early days of the computer, so there wasn't like you know all the blog sites and everything you have today, but you know, there were still enough sites that you could get information on. And you started seeing these quick comments coming in. And at first it felt like a really tasteless, bad WWE style storyline. And but within a few minutes, you begin to realize there's something more on like the like the frenzied back and forth of things that people were commenting. And I remember getting this nauseatingly sick feeling in my stomach. Like, I hope to God this is a bad WWE storyline. And, of, of course, it turned out to be that it wasn't. And, you know, within a matter of days, we were all making plans to get up to Calgary to 
to attend his funeral. And what I, before I get into the dower side of it, I'd rather talk for a split second if I could about Owen. Uh, he was a great guy. Uh, funny as hell. I uh, always like, like, like a gremlin, you know, when you think of a gremlin, that, that would be Owen to a T. Um, you know, like, I remember one time he went to the ring with, uh, dressing a singles match with Davy Boy Smith, uh, who of course was related to his sister, married him, his brother-in-law. And he took a flying mare, Davy Boy, and front chin locks him. And as soon as he chin locks him, you see Owen wipe his hands across Davy's mouth. And, you know, from the back, from where we are, I can't see what he's doing, but I, I can see Davy, like, smacking his hands in his face. And as soon as he does, he wipes his hand across his mouth again and again and again. And as he keeps going, I'm going, what the hell is he doing? And David, when he comes back and he's cussing and he's screaming and throwing things, and but he's got a beard of, like, all kind of shit on his face. <laughs> what the hell? What the hell is he doing up there? And... Here he had coffee grounds and ground up bananas and God knows what else in his tights. And the thing that's always astounded me is as many matches I've had is like, I would have no idea where I would hide all that shit in my tights. Like <laughs> where would I hide coffee grounds and ground up bananas and, you know, three or four other things. And that was Owen, but he, he was always up to something, you know, like, you know, something nefarious, something, you know, skullduggery of some sort, but, you know, never vicious or mean type of that, that I ever saw. You know, he's just always having fun. And that's the way he kept himself entertained on the road. You know, if uh, you've ever, you know, heard the stories of being on the road, the road can get long and hard. And if you don't entertain yourself somehow, it can, you know, some guys crack. Some guys, you know, do do drugs or do a lot of drinking to, to numb themselves to it. I think Owen, by and large, used humoring himself as a way of doing it. Another time we were in Eastern Germany and he and I and four or five or six guys walked across this great big parking lot to a tanning uh, salon that they had, uh, you know, a couple hundred yards away. And when we came out, the guy told me, he said, uh, Owen left. He said he, he left a few minutes ago. So I come walking out, and as I'm walking toward, you can see the hotel. It's like across this big parking area, and I see Owen, you know, about a hundred yards ahead of me, and a throng of forty, fifty, sixty people around him. And all of a sudden, those forty, fifty, sixty people come running back to me, and I see Owen waving as he's running away. What the fuck did he do now? <laughs> Here he told all of them that I was Brett coming out of the <laughs> coming out of the tanning salon, <laughs> and. So they're all come running back. You can imagine their disdain when they realized it wasn't Bret Hart coming out of there. But that was Owen. He was always up to some kind of skullduggery like that. He was such a down-to-earth, funny human being, you know. And uh, I remember thinking, like, immediately upon thinking that, hearing uh, of his tragic passing, uh, my first initial thought was and has always remained, I can't believe somebody died from professional wrestling. And since then, and as I've heard the Mia Culpas from the WWE and from Vincent Mann saying, you know, uh, he would have wanted the show to go on and things like that. You know, th those are comments that we can all try to ascribe to somebody as much as we want. Uh, here's what I can tell you with absolute certainty, because any of those other comments that we try to ascribe to somebody are just hearsay and, and, and conjecture. But the one thing I can tell you with absolute 1,000% certainty 
is that Owen Hart would have wanted his children's father to come home that week. He would have wanted his wife's husband to come home that week. And instead, within a matter of days, wrestlers across the industry, from all the companies, WCW, WWF, ECW, all those different companies, are making travel arrangements to go to Calgary to attend Owen Hart's funeral, uh, which, again, in my book, should never happen in the genre of professional wrestling. And and the picture that I was just referencing, um, it's available on Google. I mean, it surfaced literally. I remember right after the the funeral had taken place, and you know, you're dead set in the in the middle of this picture, and it's you and Brett and Terry Funk and and Nancy Benoit and Chris Benoit and uh, Brian Blair, Hulk Hogan, the entire Hart yeah. family, the Bulldog, um, and a, a Dory Funk. I mean, it's an amazing collection of talent that was there, but to celebrate the life of a friend and a colleague and, and a brother and a father. And, and I can't imagine what the emotion was like at the funeral. I'm not going to ask what was the emotion like at the funeral. Cause it's very clear, but was it surreal to be there in that moment? Um, and especially like you said, somebody dying from wrestling uh, with such ties, the way the Hart family is tied to wrestling as it is, you know, is, is that yeah. something in itself that was just hard to, to swallow? Well, the, the, the most gut-wrenching part for me was was meeting Helen and Stu. Uh, I had met Stu, obviously, before that, but, you know, just to say hello, that kind of thing. But uh, you know, losing a child is, is, is a pain that I never want to experience, and I don't think anybody, I know nobody wants to. Uh, and I think at this stage in their lives, uh, the two of them clearly, you know, had, uh, you could just see, like, them empty with it, as the entire family was. And the, the feeling that was there that day, that, that picture, by the way, was taken right uh, to the left of the, uh, the, the, the Stu Hart, the Hart compound. You know, it was a big, they had a big open area there and had set up a banquet and everything. But uh, it, it was oddly strange and surreal in the sense that, you know, we were all sitting around and celebrating and laughing about Owen and the, telling Owen stories. But you're doing it at the same time that you've, just watch the the absolutely unnecessary death of such a young and vibrant and incredible talent. Uh, it, it was it was a very strange thing uh, to say the least. And I think making it doubly odd was the fact that there were all of these multiple promotions with uh, athletes and talent present. You know where you rarely, if ever, saw. Uh, all those promotions converge in one place. And, you know, that just added an element of, of uh, oddity to the whole thing. You know, that it, it just felt surreal on so many different levels. Uh, going to the funeral home was even stranger because they had the entire downtown Calgary area cordoned off. And you had to have passes to get through in certain places. And, you know, it's, it, you could tell that Calgary was outpouring their love to the Hart family, but it felt, it had a circus feel to it, if you know what I mean. Uh, you know, you're walking in to, to watch one of your friends uh, uh, be eulogized, and again, for a completely unnecessary passing, and there's just this immense outpouring. Uh, it, it just, it was very, very strange on so many levels, but that said, uh, there was a 
sort of hope to the whole thing. You know, the, the, I remember the wrestlers talking about the hope that this would bring change to the industry, uh, that it would shine light on it and force change in the industry. And, uh, you know, I let history be the judge of whether it, it did that or not. Uh, I have my own personal opinion. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, the people that are watching this a lot longer and, and for a lot more further into the future than I will be will be the judge of that. But I personally don't believe that it brought much change at all to the plight of professional wrestlers and, and, and what they endure on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it was uh, unfortunately, you know, in the, in the midst of the Attitude Era where shocking TV was the norm. And like you said, you know, everybody thought it might have been an angle at first, and it wasn't that far-fetched to think it could have been based off of uh, even, you know, Brian Pillman's death being in the middle of an angle where, you know, uh, something extreme happening in that angle wasn't surprising. So when Brian Pillman passed away, you know, at first everybody had to question the legitimacy of it, and obviously it was very real. But, you know, just to, to, to shed a little bit of light on the career of Owen Hart, not obviously that his kids lost a father, his wife lost her husband, but just from the, we'll take it back to the wrestling perspective. Put your booking hat on if you can here, Shane. If you had Owen Hart past 1999 and Owen Hart goes on to have a long and fruitful career in the wrestling business, where did you see his trajectory possibly going? Because obviously the in-ring skill was there. The personality was there. The, the promos were there. Where would you see Owen Hart kind of falling into the next 10 years or so in the wrestling business? Well, I, I, and it sounds like a cliche, but truly for a guy like Owen, the sky was the limit. And I'll explain why. Uh, he had everything that Brett had. Uh, and then he had, I would say, more personality than Brett. You know, Brett's more of a wry, uh, even-keeled type of a personality. Owen had these... These, you know, almost, I don't want to say manic to make it sound like he had some kind of a mental illness or something, but, you know, he had these these swings of like where he'd be Owen Hart the professional, and then two minutes later he'd be crying tears, laughing so hard because of something he said or did. Uh, and I think had he been able to move his career beyond that and then demonstrated that character that was truly him, the, the real Owen Hart, in front of those cameras, which is where the industry went, you know, and, and, and that after that time frame, uh, with, you know, this whole approach to shooting on things and, uh, reality TV, et cetera, had, had Owen been able to uncork that the real Owen Hart on camera, I think the stratosphere would have been his limit, you know, as high as he wanted to go. Uh, he was great. He had all the in-ring skill, uh, and by no means trying to, take anything away from Brett. I think he had everything that Brett had in the ring. Uh, and then a little bit more in the personality department. You know, they, 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 he really was a genuinely funny and compelling guy to watch. You know, when he was up to something, you'd see a little grin on his face. Everyone in the dressing room kept their eyes on him. And in my experience, when you can compel the dressing room of guys in this industry, that strongly that you can pretty much compel the audience. Uh, so I, I think, you know, Owen Hart, had he not met his untimely end, uh, doing a wrestling stunt, uh, that, you know, he would have been and, and may still have continued to be even to this day, you know, a top star in the industry. Uh, 
you know, he, he came from that. That was his lineage. It was in his genes. Uh, so I, I think it was a passing of a real talent in, in the wrestling business when Owen Hart passed. Who the hell are you? Especially that night, obviously, you know, he didn't really piss in the ring, but you never know. He may have really done it if you didn't run out or, you know, if, if the situation was a little bit different. You ever think that he took it too far? I think he tap danced right along that line, which makes the character that so much more compelling. I mean, you know, we're sitting here in 2018 talking about something from 1996, 22 years ago. So it's... uh it, it's hard to separate those two and put yourself completely back in that mindset. But I do remember vividly me thinking to myself, what's he doing? You know, why is he pushing this far? And, you know, like the old saying in the business goes, if you can work the boys, you can sure as hell work the fans. Uh, you know, but, you know, nobody, none of us will ever know exactly how, how much of that was the real Brian Pillman how much of that was a work? How much of it was a shoot? Uh, did he push too far, not far enough? Those are things because he's no longer with us that none of us will ever be able to answer other than just based off of the acumen that we have in the industry. And looking back at what Brian Pillman did in 96, keeping in mind that nothing like this had ever been done in wrestling before, uh, especially in the advent of the big three companies. Uh, it was so cutting edge, so far beyond its time that it had to work. There was no way, you know, on that night, if you were watching it, if you were a big Brian Pillman fan and didn't believe that he was a loose cannon at some, I would dare say that at some point thereafter, you did buy into it. Uh, and saying that I would, dare say that most of the people in the building, if not all of them, believed it that night. Because for me as a performer, playing off of it, it was damn believable. So uh, like I said, you know, we'll never really get to that get to that answer because Brian Pillman's gone. But when you watch what he delivered and put down on video for us to watch forever, it was so far beyond its time and so special that you scratch your head today watching it. And if you didn't have me to be able to say, this is what was going on in the backstory, uh, it would be very easy for you to fall into, he's buying into his character too much. He's taking it too far. Um, I also think that Brian, in, in a very large way, because we had worked so much together previous to this, knew that my character would play off of that in a very strong way, had to play off of that in a very strong way. I couldn't just go out and, you know, sort of half-ass it and say, gee golly whiz, Brian, why are you going to whoop your Johnson out? Uh, you had to play it so strongly, straightforwardly, that uh, it almost guaranteed 
that it would be played out the way that he saw it in his head. And to me, that is a stamp of approval on the way that I responded to it because uh, otherwise, had he not trusted me to respond to that in that way, my guess is that Brian would have said to me before, hey, by the way, I'm thinking about doing this or that, you know, just be just be ready for it. Um, and he didn't do that. And he didn't give me that heads up. Tells me that he trusted my character to play off his character and what his character was doing in the ring as realistically and believable as, any, as if it were a suit. And so, uh, you know, that in and of itself, I think, speaks more for Brian's uh, view of what he was doing and his believing in what he was doing. And it plays out on video to a T. With him, I think one of the crazy things is you'll hear, like, you know, a story from Jim Ross or Blue Mini or a bunch of really smart guys that have been in and around the business for years. And they'll say, like, Pillman, like, pulled them off the side and whispered, like, it's just the work. I'm working. And then he would do something crazy again. And they, they would think of themselves, oh, like, wait a second. He's working me by saying that it's a work. He legitimately right. is crazy. It's like one of those people where, like, you say a really mean joke. Somebody like, "Oh, I'm joking, I'm joking," and then you say it again. It's like wait, the person's like, "Wait a second, is, yeah. are they joking? Are they joking? Or do they really mean it?" Isn't that just like the ingenious part of him? Even when he said he was working, people were like, "No, you're not. You're crazy." And then they'll be like, "Wait a second, maybe he is working us." Isn't that just a part of like the the mastermind that he was? That even a smart guy like Jim Ross or a really smart guy like Blue Mini just sitting there thinking to themselves like wait, you said you were working me, but were you working me? Like, you know what I mean? That confusion factor. Sure. I mean, look, I, I can sit here today and say, I knew when I threw the NWA title down, I was going to work. Um, I didn't. I, I, I was hoping, and I had a pretty good feeling that it would, but I didn't know for certain. And like I've told the fans this past weekend in Knoxville and ever since, had it not, you know, I might be a footnote in the industry. Um, the fact that Brian Pillman was that, uh, sure of what he was doing was going to work and that he was willing to go that extra step to try to work Jim Ross or Blue Meanie or whoever in the back tells me that he had a much deeper belief in what he was doing and was able to play it out, uh, in a much further uh, distance than I could, uh, or that I would have been willing to at that point. Um, you know, to me, I, I go back and I watch that footage of Brian and, and all the things he did from holding the baby up from the chair shot to the, I'm going to piss in the ring to the jumping into Harry Boatswain's arms, uh, all of it in ECW as a, just a freeze frame in time was so eloquent from a standpoint of working it uh, that it really does, you know, you know, for those of us in the business and we, we hear coming up in the business, you have to learn to tell a story, kid. you got to work it, and, you know, all, all those different, uh, you know, find a way to be different, all those little cliches you hear from all the old timers. Brian Pillman had that down in spades. And you can see it. You don't take my word for it. You can see it in going back and taking what we're talking about tonight and watching that video and seeing 
how truly special what he was doing on camera was, how forward thinking, how certain of the outcome he was. And uh, I'm sure that he, that he had gone to the pains that he did to make that angle what it was, that he had a plan B, a plan C, and a plan D, that if it didn't work, how would he play off of it? Uh, he had thought this down to the minutiae and portrayed it so believably and so realistically that it it tells me that he must have had a plan B and a plan C and a plan D in mind if it didn't work. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.